Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us and for the mercy of Christ in our lives. Thank you for the word of God and for the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. Now take this word and make application in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The opponent travels along well-worn paths. In 480 B.C., there was a battle called the Battle of Thermopylae. And the Persians under Xerxes invaded Greece and the Greco states bound together to get rid of the Persians. The Persians had a vastly superior army and they came to a pass called Thermopylae that they had to go through. And so the brave Spartans led by a man named Leonidas made the stand there. And they were repulsing wave after wave after wave of Persians. In fact, over 20,000 Persians were killed at the Battle of Thermopylae alone. And they were not progressing until a turncoat, a traitor, went to Xerxes and said, For a certain price, I will show you a well-traveled goat path that will take you to the back of the troops and to the side of the troops at Thermopylae. And so Xerxes sent his part of his army that way. A courier was sent to Leonidas saying, there's an army coming from your rear and from your side. So he sent the vast majority of the men home to fight another day when they had more troops. And he and 300 men stood and fought to the death with some other cohorts at the Battle of Thermopylae. The rest of the story is that a few months later, the Battle of Salamis, the Persians were defeated. And then at a land battle, a few months later, they were defeated and sent back to Persia. And Greece was spared. And Western historians said that Western civilization was spared because of the Battle of Thermopylae. The enemy travels along well-worn paths. In 1892, there was a military general by the name of Jackson who taught math at the Virginia Military Institute. He had recently achieved fame at, at the first Battle of Bull Run. His nickname was Stonewall. And so he had an army of 17,000 men, and his job was to continually get rid of or to fight superior forces from the north so they could not join with the Army of Potomac and make a charge toward Richmond. And so Stonewall Jackson had what is now called in 1892 the Valley Campaign. Listen to this. This is amazing. So the Valley Campaign, he had 17,000 men, and they marched 646 miles in 48 days, and they won seven battles against vastly superior forces. And the, the one way he's able to do it is because he would get these farmers in Virginia and he would say, now here's the mountains. Is there not a, a pass that gets us through the mountains and get us, gets us there quicker? And they said, well, it's a small pass. You can't get cannon over, but you can get your men. He said, no, we'll take it. And so he went from point A to point B because of well-worn paths. Listen, the enemy travels along well-worn paths. And we find that in 2 Peter chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the issue of false teachers. And, and Peter says to the church, this young, struggling, new church in Asia Minor, he said, you know, from, from within your ranks, there'll be teachers who will arise, and they'll even deny the sovereign reality of the God who bought them on the cross. They will introduce destructive heresies. And they will all, their destructive heresies will involve sensuality and greed. Well-known paths, sensuality and greed. The devil travels on well-known paths. And because of them, many in the church, small church, many will blaspheme the truth because of these destructive heresies. 
So you think about it. You're, you're in the church. It's a young church. It's a fledgling church. It's, it's 64 AD, and you're surrounded by this monolithic culture in Asia Minor, this pagan, and, and then you get this teaching that there are going to be teachers from within the church who deny Christ, who teach destructive heresies centered around sensuality and greed, and many will follow them and blaspheme the things of the Lord. It's very discouraging. And we know that part of their message is found in chapter 3 where they said, you know, where is this God that you talk about? Where is this God that's supposed to be coming? Where is this God that's supposed to judge? And they mock the character of God. And so the church is discouraged. They're beat up. They're getting ready to enter into a 250 year of persecution from 64 AD to 310 AD that will end with the edict of Milan. So for 250 years, there'll be ebbed and flow of persecution and destruction of the church. And so Peter, to build them up, has this general passage of exhortation that just is kind of a strong word with one application at the end. And he says, regarding these people that say, where is this God? Where is his coming? Where is this God that's supposed to deal with us? He is nowhere. It makes no difference how you live. Peter says this, key statement, chapter 2, verse 3. Their destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. They will answer to God. There is a God who is glorious and kind and merciful, but if his overtures of love are spurned, this God is a God who judges. And there's an old confession of faith that says that, that, that we don't know the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's coming exactly, so that we might, first of all, shake off all carnality and sloth because the Lord could come again today. I could die today. You could die today. And the second reason the Lord's day is kept under an enigmatic future period is, is it says this, it is to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. So what, what, how are the godly comforted in their adversity? Here's the answer. No matter what people say or do, no matter how much they lambast and blaspheme the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is a God who watches over us, and this God is just. So it, it comforts the godly more fully in their adversity. We see that in a very famous passage in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist starts off with, with the conclusion of the matter in verse 1. He says, truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. God is good. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped I was envious of the arrogant when I, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and they have no, no pains and it says their bodies are sleek and fat and they wear arrogance as a necklace and they parade in their sin. This is all an overstatement, but he's, this is what he's observing. He says, he says this, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. 
surely you place them in a slippery place and you make them fall to ruin. They're destroyed in a moment. The psalmist says, you know, I looked at people who just mocked God and cared nothing about the things of God and they abused the poor and they didn't care about anything but themselves and they wore arrogant as a necklace or as a perfume or as their, their whole wardrobe. And, and, and I said, surely I have kept my hands in purity. Surely I've walked in a way of, of, of godliness in vain until I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I got God's perspective and I saw there is an eternity and God is just and God will deal with these people. And so Peter, to encourage the church, said this is, this is a hard passage. Let me just say this is a tough passage. To encourage the church, Peter says, now let me, let me give you three examples of how God deals with people. Let me give you three examples of how their destruction is not asleep. And he says, Consider, he says, consider the angels who left their proper place in Genesis 6. And I won't go into great detail because this, this is a kind of a PG-13 group here today. They left their proper place in Genesis chapter 6 and did things they should not have done. And then it says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until to judgment. He says they're in a holding cell, as you will, until the day of real judgment. God can do that. Then he talks about Noah. He says, and if Noah, uh, he preserved Noah, a, a preacher or a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So now, there's a movie called Noah. I have not seen it. Everything I've read said it's not a very good movie. And it's not true to the scripture. It maybe should be called Fred or Bill or Tom, but not Noah. But when you read the biblical account, Noah, Noah and his wife and his three boys and their spouses were saved, even though he pled with people to come under the protection of the ark. They laughed at him. He says, God did that. And then his third example. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example. Hear that? An example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And here's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that goes back to Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, there's a man named Abraham, and he has a nephew named Lot. And they are, they're, they're prosperous, and they're, they're, they're livestock grows and their herdsmen grow and they start bickering among themselves and Abraham takes Lot up and he says now to his nephew Lot, you choose to the east or the west and whatever you choose, I'll go the other way. And it says that Lot looked over here and he saw, this is what the Bible says, he saw that the plains were watered like the garden of the Lord. And he says, man, I'm going to go there. Abraham said, fine, I'll go here. But what Lot didn't take into account there was a place in the middle of that very fertile plain called Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he went there, and he raised his daughters there, and he nurtured his family there, and he stayed there, and his soul died. When you immerse yourself in ungodliness day after day after day, your soul dies. And so we read that God decided to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes into the city with his angels 
And as the angels enter the city, Lot is there, who's been there for a number of years. And the angels, he doesn't know they're angels at this point. The angels act like they're going to put down their sleeping bags and put up their pup tent and stay in the city square, which is standard fare because there's a water source there. They could be there in the open air. And Lot says, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You've got to come to my house because Lot knew what the men of the city were like. And so he takes these men, he doesn't know they're angels yet, to his house, and he takes them into his house. He shows them hospitality, and this is what the Bible says, Genesis 19. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, all the men young and old. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight Bring them out to us that we may know them. The word know means to have carnal relations. And Lot went out to the men of the entrance and he shut the door after him. And he said this. Lot wasn't very smart. And he said, he said, men, I've got two daughters who are virgins. They're engaged to be married, but they're not married yet. I'll bring them out, and you do with them as you will, but do not do anything to these men because they're my guests. And that's not very smart. And the men of the city said, no, we're going to attack you. And they started berating Lot. The angels reached out and pulled him in the house. And then they, the Bible says they smote the men with blindness so they couldn't even find the doorknob to his house. And then the angels said to Lot, they said, Lot, we're going to, we're representatives of the living God. We're gonna, God's going to judge this city with fire. You need to flee. Two things happen that are disconcerting. Number one, Lot goes to his sons-in-law, almost married to his daughters, and he says to these men, he says, God is going to judge with fire this city. We need to run to the mountains. And the Bible says that his sons-in-law thought that he was jesting with them. And I stop and say, you know, if they thought he was jesting with them, then Lot never really talked with deep sobriety about the things of God. And the second thing I see is that Lot lingered. Lot lingered. I said, I, I, man, this is bad. I don't know if I want. Lot lingered. Listen, if you pump ungodliness into your life, and we can do it in our day and age, sit in our living room. If you pump ungodliness into your life, your soul will atrophy and die. And so finally, Lot and his wife and his two daughters fled, and his wife turned around and longingly looked at Sodom being destroyed. And the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. And many, many centuries later, Jesus says in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. That's the story of Lot. And so he gives these examples of what happens. Historically, from the book of Genesis. See, see the, the, problem, the problem is there's no reverence or fear for God. Psalm 36 says this. It says, the, the, the bottom line is there's no fear of God before the eyes of people. Verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And then he says, this is, the, this is the, the sequential steps. Number one, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He says, no one knows, no one will ever know. I can do what I want to do and I can get away with it. That's a lie. That's a lie. 
Men and women who fear God never say that. The second thing he says is that, is that the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Instead of his mouth blessing, it curses. It, it, it berates. It betrays. It lies. Number three, he ceased to act wisely and do good. Number four, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. There's no fear of God. So, so, you know, you go throughout the Psalms and you read about, I remember you in the night watches, or on your bed, I, on my bed, I think of you. Listen, the people in the day of the Bible had trouble sleeping, just like we do. And there was no sleep aid. And as you got older, you had to get up and use the bathroom. And so you're just awake. And so either you're awake and you... You're on your bed and you recount the blessings of God and the goodness of God. Or in this case, you plot evil on your bed. And you sit there and think, I'm just thinking about Charles or Joan or whatever. Boy, I'm going to get them. This is how I can get them. This is how I can do a business deal that shaves every corner. And I can make a great profit and I can do when the people I'm working with. This is the way I can. They just dishonor God. They, they plot evil upon their bed. But the problem is, verse 1, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 3, when he's talking about the sinfulness of man, quotes this passage. And he says, the basic problem with man is there is no fear of God before their eyes. And as I read this, I just thought, and I'll ask you, this exhortation passage has reverence or awe of God has the glory and the wonder and the grandeur and the power of God this week caused you to not say something that you thought about saying or to do something that you maybe thought, well, this is kind of risky, but it'll honor the Lord. Does, does, does reverence for God cause us to be people who are gracious and kind and bold and caring? This past Wednesday, I had the chance to speak to the, the deacons of our church, wonderful group of men. And I, I thought, well, I'm just going to very briefly and easily deal with the first four qualities that the Bible says should characterize a deacon in 1 Timothy 3. So right out of the blocks, the scripture says that a deacon must be a man who is sober-minded. And, and that means that they think deeply, and there's a sobriety about their life. It doesn't mean deacons aren't happy, don't have a good time, don't laugh, don't have oyster roses, and have to do all that kind of good stuff. You know, it's fun to be a deacon. It's fun to know the Lord. But, but there should be a sobriety among us because we realize there is an eternity. There's an eternity. And the way to be made right with this God who is eternal is through the work of that he accomplished for us on the cross as our substitute in the person of Jesus. And so there's, there's a sobriety. Life isn't just one round after another round after another round. I have the privilege as a pastor of doing weddings. I love weddings. Had a great wedding yesterday. But, you know, most weddings, I say this frequently, people do not listen. They're just there for the party. And I also had the, the privilege and sometimes the incredible burdensome task of doing funerals. P 
People listen to funerals. They do. And I was working through this passage. I thought about years and years and years and years ago, there was a, 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 a famine in our church, and he never came to church. And his wife came frequently, his daughters occasionally. And uh, they were adult daughters, and he was an older man, and he became sick pretty quickly and died pretty quickly. And they asked me to do the funeral, and I've said before, I will never do a funeral and say, I know he or she is with the Lord if I don't know, because that's, that, that's, that diminishes the gospel of grace. And so the, 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 the daughters came to me, and they said, we found this poem in the nightstand next to the bed where my dad died. And, and this is his handwriting, and this is what it says. It, it says, do not stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I did not die. And they said, man, this, this proves that he's in heaven. And I went, oh, man. And I did some research, and that was a poem written in 1932. And part of the poem goes like this. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on the ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Therefore, do not... Stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I did not die. That's just a pantheistic Hindu poem. It has nothing about the character of God, nothing about the cross, nothing about the hope of heaven because of Jesus. Now, I don't know where that man spent eternity. He could have had a deathbed conversion. I don't know that. But let me say to you, if, if you can hear my voice this morning, let your children and your friends and your spouse or whomever be able to stand at the grave and say, I know he's with the Lord because he's trusted in Jesus and his life spoke it. And the Bible says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. I don't want to be the glints on snow. I don't want to be amber waves of grain. I want to be with the Lord. You know? So let your people know by the way you speak and live that there is a sobriety here. This is a strong passage. This, this passage talks about the, the, the nature of judgment. Just listen to these verses. Verse 4 says this. He holds them in chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. Verse 17 he says, for them, these false teachers, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. It says in verse 6 that Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of what's going to happen to the ungodly. He says in verse 9, this primary passenger says that, that the Lord knows how to keep the, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so this is, this is, this is sobriety. This is certain and unrelenting. And see, my, my question is, am I moved emotionally to agony and or to tears by the thought of people I know and love going to hell forever? Am I moved? And I think of what Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 10. Just listen to these verses. 14 and 15 says, Jesus says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for that land, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, than for that town. And you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? 
He says, he says they have a greater position of privilege. They hear the words of Messiah King. Or I think of the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 20, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, a city where he ministered. Woe to you, Bethsaida, a city where he taught. For if the mighty works had been done in you that were done in Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities that rejected the Israelites, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, where Jesus lived and ministered, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. You can't mistakenly hear that. And so Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, said years ago after reading this passage, if God does not judge the United States of America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Does it move me to agony and tears? The people you work with, your neighbors, your family members. See, in our culture, basically, hell is joked about. I got this movie review, and I asked a minister assistant who's a wonderful woman, so just, just crop that out for Sunday morning. And it, and it says, Hell Reconsidered. It's a movie review of the movie Mad Max Fury Road that I have not seen. But this guy says it's the best movie he's seen in 10 years. I don't I'll take his word for it. But, but she, I guess she cropped it out because we shouldn't be cussing in church. So it's just blank. But it really should be hell reconsidered. So, so we, we, we laugh about it. Have you heard the one about the uh, three men mistakenly went to hell instead of heaven? And Peter called up the devil and said to the devil, you need to send those guys back up here. And the devil says, no, I've got them. You cannot have them. And then Peter said, well, if you don't send them up, I'm going to take you to court. And the devil said... Where are in the world are you going to get an attorney up there? You know, we, we hear that and, and you know, we, we, we laugh at that stuff, but, but really, hell's no laughing matter. Hell is real. Spurgeon gave a sermon that talked about the importance of loving your children, and he gave this example. It's a great story. Spurgeon died in 1898, British preacher, but he said that. There was a, a mom and a dad who had one son who had grown to be a very successful person of esteem and of influence and successful, and but this one adult son had no concern for the things of God. And so when he visits his mom and dad, they're a little bit older, and he goes to church with them. And when he goes to church, the pastor spoke on the glories of heaven and how heaven is uh, unending bliss and ongoing knowledge and projects and fellowship and joy and there's no need for a light in heaven because Jesus is the light of all of heaven. And it's just wonderful. And, and the man just was thrilled with how heaven was described. And he looked to his left and his mom and dad were weeping. And so they got home for lunch and said, you know, I, I thought the pastor did a great job talking about the glories of heaven. But, but you were weeping. Why were you weeping? And they said, well, we both had the same thought simultaneously. The thought was this, we love you. 
more than life itself, and we have no certainty that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven. And it grieves our heart. And Spurgeon said that God used the tears and the pleadings of the parents to bring that son to faith. Weep for people and let them know you're praying for them and you care for them. And even though they mock God, these people mock God, where's the signs of his coming? Where are they? Come on. We care. And so to do this, we've got to fight what I call uh, forced amnesia. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And that means to become insensitive. That your hearts become insensitive with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Living in excessive attraction to an intoxicating sinful world will destroy your soul. And Jesus says, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. And I say to you, I say to me, watch yourself. The cares of life just suck the marrow out of your bones. So we come to verses 9 and 10, which are the application part of this exhortation. And he says this, he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Once again, the well-traveled paths, carnality, arrogance, despising the name of God and the character of God. But we've, we've talked about keeping under judgment. Now, let me just make the comment here. about He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The word rescue or deliver is a beautiful word. 1 Thessalonians 1 says they, they themselves report... How, how, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So he will rescue us. Colossians 1 verse 13 says that, that he has rescued us, past tense and present tense. He's rescued us from darkness and delivered us to the kingdom of light. God rescues his people. While I was able to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And I look at this and say, how, how does God rescue his people? Well, in part, he rescues his people, but by the exhortation of chapter 1, where Peter says, make your calling and your election sure, as we remember and as we rejoice in our calling in verses 1 and 2, a faith of equal standing with the apostles, and as we give ourselves to adding to our faith moral excellence, and to moral excellence we add knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And, and, and we persevere as we continually remind ourselves and stir ourselves up and recall the great things of God. And so, so I say to you, church, stir yourself up. Recall, remember. And the passage, as, as we think about it, God is able to keep under punishment until the day of judgment. I read that and I think, there's a present-day judgment upon people who spurn the name of Jesus. A present-day judgment that will be 
seen here and experienced here, but really experienced in eternity. So I, I plead with you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, do not turn your ear away from his call to repent and believe the good news. There's a passage in Isaiah 57 where God is issuing a, a great call to repentance to the people. And he says this, he says, you know, they have, they have not considered my ways. They've walked in iniquity, but, 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 but. I will dwell among them, and I will heal them, and I will restore them, and I will come to them again. That's, that's his, that is his invitation. Come to him. He says, but if they, if they reject me, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. There is no peace for the wicked. There's peace for God's people. There's a recent book released entitled The Violet Hour by Katie Ropey about how some of the famous literary giants of the last century died. Famous people. She talked about Sigmund Freud and how he had cancer and he never quit smoking cigars. You know, that was killing him. And, and he refused to take medication because he wanted to be alert. And he had physician-assisted suicide in England. She talks about Dylan Thomas, a famous Welsh playwright who was enormously gifted and died at the age of 39 and how one of the last things Dylan Thomas wrote was this, thank God I don't have to meet myself socially or listen to myself or except when reluctantly shaving, see that red blubbery circle mounted on my ballooning body. <laughs> and he died. Tells us the very tragic story of a film producer, author named Susan Sontag, who died at age 71 of cancer. And she went through what the book says a very agonizing bone marrow transplant that had failed. And so Sontag responds with something like hard bitten self awareness when the physician said to her, you might want to take this time to concentrate on your spiritual values. In other words, you're going to die. And Susan Sontag said back acerbically, I have no spiritual values. Then the doctor said, well, then you might want to take time to be with your friends. And she said, I have no friends. And then I thought, God, in your grace, let us weep for people who have no hope. And by your grace, let us die well. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And let us live with a sense of deep, deep sobriety. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, aware of people in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, very dear friends who um, we just don't know where they stand with you or, or we do know when it causes us to tremble. And, and I pray you would keep us from falling prey to the easy, 
nonsensical shibboleths of our day that say you're justified by death when we know you're justified only by faith in the work of Christ upon the cross. So make us broken and caring. Help us to weep and mourn. Help us to just say to people, I'm praying for you. I care for you. Help us to count the costs of loving our parents who aren't believers or loving our children who aren't believers or our spouses. But just let us love. Let us not fall prey to the amnesia that causes us to be overwhelmed with the pressing concerns of life, but help us to live with a sense of calling, Lord. We're yours. We are yours. We proclaimed that earlier in the hour when we took the Lord's Supper. We're yours. So teach us, I pray. Um, show us yourself. And uh, as, as the Easter season approaches, may this be a time of joyful re-examination and glorying in the greatness of the cross and the empty tomb. So bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a good day.